Let's turn in the scriptures to Mark chapter 6. It has been thrilling to worship the Lord together with you this morning around the truths of Isaiah 49. We are studying today Mark chapter 6, and Mark's account of the gospel is leading to a crisis, a crisis that is going to be central in chapter 8. The central crisis in the gospel, according to Mark, is basically, will people recognize who Jesus truly is, and will they choose to personally follow him? The crisis toward which Mark's gospel is driving is, will people recognize who Jesus truly is and and follow him? And throughout the first several chapters of Mark, Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority of God. He can restore people's health. He can forgive people's sins. He can raise the dead. He can subdue creation. He can defeat Satan and his armies. He's demonstrated all these things. And as Jesus proves that he is God, he keeps urging personal decision. He keeps warning people about rejecting him. And he keeps calling people to believe in him. If you just read for Jesus' calls in the first like five chapters, he says things like, believe the gospel, that he's the king. Follow me. Hear the message of the kingdom and receive it. Welcome it. He keeps asking his disciples, where is your faith? He tells the father of, of the girl who's died, only believe He keeps warning against rejecting him, and he keeps insisting, believe, 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 welcome the message of who I truly am. That's the crisis that the gospel's driving at. Now, the part of Mark that we're studying today, chapter 6, begins with three ominous events. They show people misunderstanding Jesus and rejecting him. And it ends with three events that show who Jesus truly is. These are glorious events, and they demonstrate why everyone should commit their lives to him. So we're going to start reading in Mark chapter 6, and in just a few minutes I'm going to take a break from reading to to take a longer-than-normal rabbit trail. Mark 6, 1. Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown. This is Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath there in Nazareth, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom that's given to him? How are so many mighty things done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? They're saying, isn't this that uneducated working class peasant? Son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters right here with us? And there in Nazareth, they took offense at him. They rejected him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he couldn't do mighty work there except. He did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But he marveled because of their unbelief, their rejection of him. 
and he went about the villages teaching. And this is where I want to take just a little break. I want to point your attention back to verse 3. Jesus had four brothers and sisters, plural, so at least two, meaning that he was the oldest of seven children, at least seven children. Now, this is where I want to take just a, a, a break. I don't do this normally, but I want to take a, a longer than normal break in the middle of scripture reading to make a really critical clarification because we have so many in our congregation that are continually asking questions about this. I think I've had three personal questions about this issue even this week. So I want you to know that in, in what I'm doing, I'm trying to give a pastoral explanation to shepherd people and to protect those that I'm responsible for teaching. And what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to point fingers or try to boost us up and make, make us feel better than ourselves. That's not it at all. But this little detail that Jesus had, at least seven siblings, explains one of the reasons one of the reasons that you should not be Roman Catholic. I want to start the explanation just a little deeper, and then I want to work back up to this surface detail, okay? Here's what I actually explain in our membership orientation class. So if you're going to become a member of Tri-County, we use this chart to show comparisons between what Tri-County believes and what other people who call themselves Christians believe. And when it comes to generally the first half of our statement of faith, we agree with Roman Catholicism. These are the, the ones that are circled here in the, first, in the first part. When it comes to the first half of our doctrinal convictions, things like we believe that God is triune, he's three in one, that humans are made in God's image, but we've been, been lost in sin since Adam fell. Or that Jesus died on a cross as our substitute and he's the only savior. These are areas in which we agree with Roman Catholicism and the church's major teachings. But when it comes to the second half of our doctrinal convictions regarding like how what Jesus did on the cross gets applied to us and how it affects our lives today, we have significant differences with Roman Catholics. With the Bible, we affirm that our guilt due to our rebellion, our guilt before God, can only be washed away by faith. It is faith alone. It is personal faith, repentant faith. That means we turn from our rebellion. It is persevering faith in Jesus and Jesus alone as our mediator. This is where we would have significant differences because in Catholicism, the stress is that our guilt can be relieved. It can be cleansed through what Jesus did, but it gets applied to us through baptism and through observing the Mass on a weekly basis or through talking with a priest and hearing him say, I absolve you. The way what Jesus did gets applied to us is something that we differ significantly with Roman Catholics on. And these are not minor differences. They are matters of eternal salvation. How can you be right with God? How can you be rid of guilt? These are critical matters. Now, coming back to the details, we're coming back to the surface in today's passage. The Catholic Church goes further in its mix of truth and error, especially in what it teaches about sex. 
Now, I need you to know that I am not trying to bash. I actually agree with Roman Catholics and their, their positions on like the traditional family, the evils of pornography, respect for unborn life, there are actually several Catholic authors I've read in the last couple of years with deep, deep thankfulness. And I've recommended their books. I've given their books away. I, I think of people like Ryan Anderson or Robert George at Princeton or Jay Bashevsky down in the University of Texas, Austin. These are Roman Catholic scholars who are doing a wonderful job on articulating matters of family opposition to pornography or, or care for the, for the unborn. They're, they're outstanding. But Roman Catholic also mixes with truth so much error, and error particularly regarding sexuality, thinking that, for example, church leaders must be celibate. Paul actually teaches that a demand for celibacy against marriage is a demonic teaching. It's 1 Timothy 4. Or, and this is getting really close to our passage, they teach that Mary maintained her virginity throughout the rest of her life. It's called the doctrine of the perpetual virginity. Or they go further and they say, Mary herself wasn't even conceived by human sexuality. She was conceived by the immaculate conception, just like Jesus was, a doctrine that's found nowhere in Scripture. And so I look at a detail like this where the Bible just plainly says Jesus was one of at least seven other siblings. And I say, please beware of versions of Christianity that are not biblical or that mix truth and error. I want you to discern truth from error so that you won't be misled, that you won't be misled into error into false teachings that sound religious. It can sound religious to say, we are holier than, than entering marriage. There is a holier state than marriage, or something like this. These things can damage healthy living. These things can deceive us about how to be right with God. They may give the appearance of religion, but have no foundation in actual truth. And Paul said in Romans 10, it is possible to be religious, in fact, to be zealously religious, but not according to knowledge. That's why I give this warning this morning. Jesus had brothers and sisters. It says it clearly in the text. Now I want to pick up reading again in verse 7. After Jesus was rejected in his hometown, he called the twelve. And he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, just one. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that, that city. In other words, don't try to work your way up the ladder, constantly trying to get better accommodations. And if in any place they won't receive you, and they won't listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Now, King Herod heard of it because Jesus' name had become popular. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
That's why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, no, no, he's Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, it's John, the one I beheaded. He's been raised. And from this point on, all the way to verse 30, is like a little tangent that Mark takes us on about how John had been executed. So the main idea is, Herod and all these people in the area are thinking Jesus is just a mere prophet. But we find out this detail that actually the prophet John, who was the forerunner of Jesus, he was, he was executed. And here's this little rabbit trail. I'm going to try to show you that it's no rabbit trail. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent him and, and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been confronting Herod, saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't because Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. So Herod kept him safe, even though his wife wanted him dead. And when Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men in Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, this is Herod's teenage niece, we find out that her name is Salome, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced before all these uppity-ups, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. He's probably drunk when he's throwing out this praise. He vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. And this is how Herod was pressured into executing John in prison. Verse 29 records that after the execution, John's followers gave his remains a respectful burial. Let's pick up reading in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus. They told him all that they had done and taught. They're coming back from this tour in which they're representing Jesus. They're ambassadors of the king, representing what kind of power he has in the greater region. So they come back, and they had no leisure, the end of verse 31 says, even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many people saw them going, and they recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it grew late. His disciples came to him and they said, This is a desolate place. The hour's now late. Send these people away into the surrounding countryside and villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A denarii is a day's wage. So 200 denarii is the better part of a year's salary. I looked up earlier this week what it would cost if we just went to Walmart and got simple sandwich trays for this kind of a crowd. 
rough guess after about two minutes of research, $20,000. This is a massive amount of food. Verse 38 says, and he said to them, okay, so how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish, five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Interesting details. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now, just note here what I've pointed out in previous weeks, that Mark is emphasizing 12 because he sees significance in it with what Jesus is doing in terms of fulfilling what the 12 tribes of Israel were supposed to do but had failed at. And those who ate, verse 34, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. Jesus' private prayer life is just convicting to me. This is the second of third times it's mentioned in this gospel. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought, it's a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. That concept comes from what Frank taught a few weeks ago in chapter 4, Jesus' parable of the hard soils and the soft soil that could receive the message that Jesus is God's chosen king. These disciples should have gotten it when they saw the feeding of the 5,000, but that message hadn't sunk in that he is God come to feed his people. Verse 53 says, When they had crossed over the lake, they came to the land at Gennesaret. Ginosar. Uh, I had the privilege about 20 years ago now of staying in a hotel in Ginosar, Gennesaret. And uh, it was a delightful uh, little, little uh, hotel there on the side of the Sea of Galilee. Unforgettable. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and they ran to the whole region and began bringing sick people on their beds to wherever he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Hmm. I pointed out earlier that this chapter has three episodes that show people misunderstanding Jesus and rejecting him, and it ends with three glorious events that show who Jesus is and why everyone should commit their lives to him. 
So I'd put the main point of Mark 6 like this. Jesus of Nazareth is more than a carpenter. He's God become man, and every person should submit their lives to him until he ends all of our suffering. Jesus of Nazareth is more than a carpenter. This is the point that Mark's driving at. He's not just some carpenter, as the people in Nazareth demeaned him. Jesus of Nazareth is God become man. Every person should submit their life to him until he ends all suffering. Now what I want to do is I want to explain each of those sets of three events. So we're going to have two main points, and I'm going to share some application at the end of each of those groups. I'll finish with actually a, a life story of the man who wrote more than a carpenter. The first point is this. Don't misunderstand Jesus and reject him. First half of Mark 6, don't misunderstand Jesus and reject him. The three historical events that open this chapter together stress that people are rejecting Jesus because they they misunderstand him. The first situation happens in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. The people recognize him as a remarkable teacher there in Nazareth. But they refuse to acknowledge that his wise teaching and his miraculous power might indicate something more, like that he's God. They ask in verse 3, isn't this the son of the carpenter? The son of Mary? Now, this is an insult, okay? In that day, to identify a man by his mother rather than his father was an insult. It wasn't simply saying, you're a mama's boy. It was basically like someone today saying, you're an SOB. It's an insult with the effect they're saying, we know who your mom is, but we're we're not sure who your dad is. And according to the the people here in Nazareth in verse 3, They take offense at him, and the village receives little healing. And what is being conveyed in this is, if you don't believe who Jesus truly is and you reject him, you are left in your misery. The second situation, Jesus sends out 12 ambassadors on this temporary mission to do what he's been doing. They're preaching repentance while healing the sick and casting out the demons in those who've been demonized. They're doing this as representatives of the king to show that their king can conquer the curse. All that's gone wrong in creation, their king, the one whom they're representing, he can rid creation of the curse. And as he commissions the 12, it's really interesting that Jesus explains what to do when people won't receive you when people won't hear you, they won't listen to you. What Jesus is doing in this is he is preparing his followers to be rejected, just like he's been rejected. The third situation is where King Herod hears about Jesus and thinks to himself, this is definitely John whom I executed, raised back to life. But according to verse 15, others thought 
Jesus might be Elijah returned to earth. Maybe he's another one of the prophets like Jeremiah, maybe like Daniel. The bottom line of this third episode, this King Herod episode, is that there were many others who thought way too little of Jesus. Now, Mark goes on here to explain in detail how John died. And I read just a portion of it. In just a minute, I want to explain why Mark gives those sorts of background details. They seem tangential to his point. But right now, I just want to understand that he's tying together these three episodes to emphasize, don't misunderstand who Jesus is. Don't reject him as a mere carpenter, as a mere amazing prophet. Those sorts of views of Jesus are misunderstandings. They're inaccurate. They're demeaning. That's Mark's point in the first half of chapter 6. I want to take a minute to apply this passage, and I want to focus on this application actually to Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, then one critical lesson that you must learn early in your discipleship, early in your following of Jesus, is can you face rejection? Do you have a kind of commitment to Jesus that can stand firm when other people reject you? Other people don't like you because you follow Jesus. Other people want you out of their presence because you're a Jesus follower. Adults, can you face family rejection for Christ's sake? Not because you're a jerk, but because you follow Jesus. Right? We can be rejected as Christians because we do things that are really, really off-putting. But can you face family rejection because you follow Jesus? Teens? Christian teens, can you follow Jesus even though it might mean that your friends ostracize you? They laugh at you, they, they avoid you, and they criticize you because you're not cool like they are. Or maybe a, a different way of stating it, something that I've seen a lot of people get off the Jesus train. Are you committed to Jesus so deeply that you are willing to say no to dating a non-Christian? I fear that some of our singles, I've watched it happen. Some of our singles would walk away from Jesus if a cute non-Christian showed interest in you. Is a cute potential date, a cute potential spouse, more important to you than Jesus? Can you deal with rejection in your following of Jesus? Can you say, I follow Jesus? So I can deal with this relationship ending. This is like the basics of following Jesus. You need to be able to deal with rejection. Your following of Jesus has to be tough enough that can handle personal rejection. The second half of Mark I want to now focus on. Mark says, understand that Jesus is God and follow him until his glory fills the earth. The three episodes that conclude Mark 6 don't focus on misunderstanding Jesus, but understanding him rightly, having an accurate understanding of him. The first of those last three is the situation in which Jesus brings his disciples into the desolate place, and a huge crowd follows them there, and he ends up giving them rest and food. He ends up satisfying them. 
Now, here's where I want to say, get what Mark's doing. Sometimes we miss the, the forest for the trees, and it's one of the beauties of working through an entire chapter at once. Why does Mark go into so much detail about John's beheading at the hands of Herod? Well, the reason Mark did that is because Mark wants to contrast kings and feasts. He starts off with Herod, Israel's wannabe king. And he describes how Herod hosted this lewd feast on the tax dollars of his people. That feast was full of sin and death. Mark doesn't give the lewd details, but you read anyone in ancient history. And this dance that's performed is horrendous. It's demeaning the image of God in this young girl, Salome. Herod throws a feast on the people's dime, and it's full of sin and death. But Jesus, Israel's rightful king, hosts a lavish feast that costs the people nothing, and he fully satisfied them. Mark is contrasting kings and contrasting feasts. Now, most people didn't understand it immediately. But Jesus was significantly messaging in this miracle of the 5,000 being fed. There was messaging going on. Let me give just a couple of them. Mark is tipping us off with all these details. Jesus was claiming to be better than Moses because just like Moses divided the people into 50s and 100s when he gave justices over them, Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Moses I'm greater. I'm, I'm getting ready to lead a greater exodus than Moses when he divides the people into 50s and 100s. He was claiming to be Israel's shepherd. He saw people like sheep as having no shepherd. And he truly cared for the sheep. He made them sit down in green grass. Hear any echoes? Psalm 23. The shepherd is making his people sit down in green grass. And he's showing that he could revive them by being their shepherd. Jesus was effectively shouting two passages of scripture. Psalm 132, Isaiah 63. I'm the Lord who satisfies the needy with bread. The Lord is the one who satisfies the needy with bread. Psalm 132, 15. Or, I'm the Lord who brings you into the wilderness and gives you rest. That's Isaiah 63, 11 to 14. Jesus is shouting these, these messages by feeding the 5,000. I'm greater than Moses. I'm Israel's shepherd. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who gives the needy bread and takes people into the wilderness and gives them rest. There's significant messaging going on. Now, in the second situation, Jesus walks on the water, right? He walks on the water, and here he demonstrates again that he's God. He demonstrates that he's God, he acts like God, and then he claims to be God. Okay? I want to explain how. There are three parts. If you look at verse 48, Mark reports, he came to them walking on the sea. By walking on the water, Jesus is demonstrating that he's God. For example, Job 9.8 says, God alone treads the waves of the sea, walks on top of the water. 
Secondly, in that same verse, Mark 48, it's recorded that Jesus meant to pass by them. His intention was to pass by them. Jesus is behaving like God who passed in front of Moses, revealing his glory. Jesus is behaving like God who passed in front of the prophet Elijah on Mount Horeb in a soft whisper, revealing his glory to the prophet. Jesus is acting like God, passing before his disciples. And finally, in verse 50, Jesus says, Take heart, it's I, I am. Do not be afraid. I point out, when he says, it is I, he used two words. I am. I don't know why the translators, in basically every translation you look at, take it like, it is I, or I am he. The, the wording is, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the God who met Moses at the burning bush, who revealed his name and said, I am who I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the God who can bring plagues on the nations. I am the God who can lead my people out through splitting the Red Sea. Jesus is conveying, I am greater than Moses. I am greater than any prophet like Elijah. He's saying, I can lead the entire creation in an exodus out of sin and death, out of the curse. Wow. Now Mark's concluding comment here in the second section is really interesting. He says, the disciples should not have been astonished. Their hearts shouldn't have been hard to the reality that Jesus is God. He's God become man. He can rid creation of the curse. Mark says they should have gotten that lesson with the feeding of the 5,000, but they hadn't yet gotten it. Hmm. The third situation is really just a summary. Mark offers a summary of the healings that Jesus performed on crowds. And this was in the region of Ginosar, modern Ginosar, near Capernaum. Mark ends that report saying, All who touched Jesus were healed. And with this broad brush, Mark is simply re-emphasizing that Jesus is God become man and he can heal all that's diseased and broken in the world if you'll just touch him. If you'll implore him. Those are the words. Everyone should read this last segment and we should come away with this application. This is for those of you who are not Christians, who are not followers, or maybe you're exploring it right now. You need to realize who Jesus is. You need to understand who he is. And you need to commit your life to him. You need to follow him. You need to, like it's said in this last section, implore him. Do you know what imploring is? Help! Jesus, help me! I need you! You implore Jesus. You reach out for him you will be healed. Right now, you will be cleansed of your sin. As we sang earlier in the service, you will be united with the work of Jesus. By faith and faith alone, you grab him. 
Say, Jesus, help me, forgive me, rule me, save me, shepherd me. Be my king, be my Lord. I, I, I'm going to follow you. That's what it looks like. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I urge you to do that. It's the only way that you will be healed. Right now, you will be healed of your guilt. You will be cleansed. You'll be reconciled to God. You'll have your heart changed so that you want to obey God. But you will receive every one of the promises. You keep following Jesus, you will one day inherit the kingdom of Jesus where there is no sin and death. You will be healed. Implore him, touch him, and commit to following him until his glory fills the earth. Now, I want to end with just a personal story. Josh McDowell. He tells his personal story in a little book that sold millions of copies. The edition I have says 15 million. Just a little book called More Than a Carpenter. I've got five copies up here. Anyone who wants afterward, you can come up and pick one up. And I've got a few more if they, if they run out. Please feel free to come up and grab one after the service. The author of that book, Josh McDowell, remembers how as a teenager he grew up on a Michigan farm and he began to wrestle with basic life questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And the church he attended in high school didn't answer his questions, so he quit going. He ended up going to a college and discovered pretty quickly that he couldn't find much help there either. I quote him, Josh says, you can learn many things at a university, but I didn't find the answers I was seeking. Faculty members and my fellow students had just as many problems, frustrations, and unanswered questions as I did. One day on campus, I saw a student wearing a t-shirt that read, don't follow me, I'm lost. That's how everyone in the university seemed to me. He said, I endured Monday through Friday, living only for the partying of the weekends, and then on Monday, the meaningless cycle would begin all over again. But I didn't really let on to anyone around me that my life was meaningless. I was too proud for that. I wouldn't let it show. He was a pre-law student, and in the middle of his legal studies, he met a few students who were quite different. He describes the eight students that he met as disgustingly happy. And he says they deeply cared for each other, and even for those of us who were around them. So he met up with some of them at the student center, and he quickly learned that they were Christians, and he immediately dismissed what they were saying. He said, belief in God is only for the weak. It's only for the stupid. I don't want anything to do with religious people. And then he explains what happened next. He said, then a few of these new friends issued me a challenge. They challenged me to make an examination of the claims of Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God become human, who died on a cross, rose from the dead, is alive today, and can really change people's lives. They said, do a rigorous intellectual exam of those claims. He said, I thought their challenge was a joke. Everyone with any sense knew Christianity was based on a myth. But I accepted my friend's challenge, mostly out of spite to prove them wrong. And Josh McDowell ended up becoming consumed for a couple months in this challenge that these friends gave him. He actually dropped out of school for a semester 
and did some research across the Atlantic. And his book is about the conclusion. He explains, he summarizes the conclusion like this. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the Old and New Testament documents were some of the most reliable documents in all of the ancient world. And if they were reliable, what about this man Jesus, whom I had dismissed as a mere carpenter? I thought he had gotten caught up in his own visions of grandeur. I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter. He was all he claimed to be. Let's pray. God, I pray that there would be people here who implore Jesus for healing and find healing now and forever in him. God, I pray that you would toughen us who are followers of Jesus to face rejection. And I pray that we would follow Jesus, convinced that he's God, convinced that viewing him as a mere carpenter, as a mere prophet, is demeaning. I pray that we would view him as God become man who can rid this world of suffering. Help us to follow him till we see him. For his glory and our good, I pray. Amen. Amen.